0: Welcome to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to be a community of believers proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through worship, discipleship, and service. Our prayer is that you are transformed by the word of God in the following message, and we trust you are using this podcast as a supplement to your participation in a gospel church near you. Let's now hear what God has for us. Well, a very good morning to you, church. I hope you still have your Bibles open to 2 Kings in chapter 22. 2 Kings in chapter 22, verse 1 through 23, verse 30 is where we will be this morning. Uh, This, Lord willing, is our second to last sermon in the books of Kings. Uh, I feel like that little kid who... Uh, you know, it's time to go to bed, but they don't wanna go to bed. I feel like that with the books of Kings. I don't want them to end. It's been such a enlightening time, at least for me. I hope if you've been here for the majority of these messages that you could say the same about uh, how these books have landed in your life. Uh, But there's a beautiful clause in the chapter that Daniel just read moments ago that I wanna use as the tag for these two chapters. I'm calling it, I have found the book. I have found the book. So let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer. Our Father in heaven, you have firmly fixed your word above the heavens. It is right there that with your name, you have exalted it. And we pray this morning that you would give give us a greater view of your word, that we would submit to it, that we would receive it with meekness. We want to think properly properly. We want to act in a way that pleases you, and we want to love you with our whole heart. Oh, Lord, we confess once again that we cannot do any of these things apart from the grace of the Holy Spirit, so we ask for his help now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I need to admit this morning and speak very candidly that I feel an unusual amount of dissonance and discomfort as we turn to 2 Kings 22 and 23. And this is for a a few reasons. On the one hand, what we have in the story of Josiah is one of the most inspiring stories in all of the Old Testament, maybe in all of the Bible. The the life of Josiah is incredibly inspiring. Here is a man who I think could accurately be described as a man after God's own heart. So I, I want us to explore the beauty of this life that Josiah lived. On the other hand, though, I believe that if I could sum up these chapters in one word, it would be judgment. We need to talk about the judgment of God this morning. Now, that's incredibly uncomfortable for a lot of people because we live in a world where there's proverbial signs or metaphorical signs everywhere you look that says, under no circumstances can you talk about the judgment of God. Metaphorically speaking, these signs hang in many people's homes. You can't talk about the judgment of God here. They might hang metaphorically in your workplace. Under no circumstances can you talk about the judgment of God. On the street signs outside of this church building, everywhere we look, we are being told that this is something that we cannot touch. You can maybe think about this in the quietness of your home by yourself, but we can't talk about the judgment of God here. This is why I'm feeling the tension. Amazing story but we got to talk about the judgment of God. There's another reason why I'm feeling a lot of discomfort and dissonance in my own heart. Because the very last thing I want to do for someone who is in Christ Jesus this morning is to make you doubt your salvation, is to make you think that the wrath of God and the condemnation of God is coming against you. That is the last thing I want to do for a true Christian who is in Christ Jesus. On the other hand, I shudder at giving someone false comfort who is in here this morning, who is not in Christ, and who actually has the wrath of God coming against them. I'm feeling these tensions. I don't want to disrupt the conscience of someone who should have a comforted conscience, and yet I don't want to comfort the person's conscience who should be uncomfortable when they think about the judgment of God. So here we are. The stage is set for our time. I am approaching these chapters with fear and trepidation, but knowing that God's word is powerful to deliver the truth to us. And we have handcuffed ourselves as a church to the word of God. Wherever the word goes, we go. And wherever the word doesn't go, we consider as off limits. Because if we don't address the hard things in scripture, then we rob ourselves of the comfortable things in scripture. We rob ourselves of the joys that the Bible has for us. So we need to press in here. We need to apply our minds rigorously to 2 Kings 22 and 23. Are we all on board with that? Well, then let me ask you candidly this morning. And I'm, I'm speaking to each of you individually. When's the last time you considered the fast approaching judgment of God? When's the last time you meditated on and thought about the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead? Some of you could honestly say, it was just a few minutes ago. We just confessed the Apostles' Creed. Jesus Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Uh, Some of you might say, well, I, you know, I had a, a little skirmish with a coworker at the end of Friday afternoon, and my mind has been set on other things. And so when we were reciting the Apostles' Creed, I I wasn't really thinking about it. So it's been a while since I've thought about the judgment of God. Perhaps you're someone not in those categories, but you're someone who's intentionally resisted thinking about the judgment of God. Maybe someone in your life died recently. You're not sure about the state of their soul. And you are extraordinarily fearful to think about the fact that they stood before the judgment seat of Christ. And there's one last category of people. Maybe you've never thought about the judgment of God before. Maybe not because you're resisting it, but you're not a Christian. You haven't thought about eternal things in this respect. No matter where you are, if you woke up this morning thinking about the return of Christ, or if you've never thought about it before, we all need to think about this this morning. And we need an answer to a question that changes everything. How do you live in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again? How do you live right now knowing that judgment is imminent? It's right around the corner. The judge is standing at the door. We need to answer this question and praise be to God that I believe his word takes us there in 2 Kings. And I want to give you the answer here up front. And oftentimes, some of you ask me, why why do you give us the answer up front? You know, we're tempted to check out when you don't keep the drama of what you're trying to say. The reason we tell you up front is so that you can test what we say against the word. I'd rather you have the tools in your tool belt to say, is that actually in the Bible than to say, I'm going to keep this dramatic tension and show you it at the end. So here's what these chapters teach us, that imminent judgment calls for immediate reformation. Imminent judgment calls for immediate reformation. Imminent, what does that mean? It's right around the corner. It's as if Jesus is right here behind this door. We can't see him right now, but he's going to break in at any second. We don't know where he's coming from. We don't know when he's coming, but he's coming soon, and we need to be on the lookout. Imminent judgment. It calls for immediate reformation. Another way of saying this, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's the first sermon of John the Baptist, and indeed of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now, I want to be abundantly clear here that when we talk about judgment, we're not necessarily talking about condemnation. There's a difference. Judgment is neutral. When you face a judgment, you're either proven innocent or proven guilty. But judgment is merely the place of decision. So when I say that imminent judgment is at hand, I'm not saying imminent condemnation is at hand. I'm saying that a decision point is coming, and we're going to stand before the face of God. Judgment is also not just an Old Testament idea. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1 talks about the judgment of God being a consistent reality, even in the life of the church. This thing is something that we live in. It's like the water that fish swim in. The wrath of God. Or how about this from Hebrews 9, 27? It's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. That's a New Testament text. Or how about this from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Are you tracking with me? This isn't just an Old Testament idea. This isn't just an extra biblical idea that we have in the Apostles' Creed, but the judgment of God is something that we see even in the New Testament. So we need to consider this in order, and so I've grouped my thoughts under two movements, imminent judgment and immediate reformation. First, imminent judgment, and then immediate reformation. So chapter 22 and verses 1 to 20 is where the story begins, and the story introduces us to a new king at the tender age of eight years old, and his name is Josiah. He's at the age of a third grader, and this king is as good as they come. Now, some of you might have your head spinning. How could an eight-year-old be the king of a people? How exactly did this work? Now, a few things, we don't know exactly what his power looked like, how many decisions he was making at eight years old, but here's what I can tell you. He was a legal king, and he was a legitimate king. This is a king after David's line, and so this eight-year-old named Josiah, he has a rightful claim on the throne, and he is king. It's amazing. You have to be 35 years old to be president in the United States, but here we have a third grader who's ruling over the people of Israel. Now, there's a parallel account of Josiah's life in the books of Chronicles, or I should say in the book of Second Chronicles, and if we cheat a little bit, we learn a few things about Josiah in 2 Chronicles. At the age of 16, he begins seeking Yahweh. At the age of 16, we're told that he begins seeking Yahweh. At the age of 20, he begins purging Jerusalem of all of the idolatry and all the idols that are in the kingdom. And then at age 26 is when the biggest spiritual reformation that ever takes place in the Old Testament takes place. It's in his 18th year of his reign, the 26th year of his life. So the verdict that we get in verse 2 of chapter 22 is delightful. It says, he did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh. Look at verse 2. He did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh. There are several kings in Judah who received this commendation. But then it says this, he walked in the way of David, his father. That's high praise. And there are a few other kings who received this praise in 2 Kings. But no one else besides Josiah gets this last thing. And he did not turn to the right or to the left. He did not turn to the right or to the left. Josiah alone receives this commendation in the word of God. Now, I think what this is alluding to is Deuteronomy chapter 5. If you've been with us in the book of Deuteronomy, then you know that the Ten Commandments are restated in Deuteronomy 5, or I should say the Ten Words, that's what they're called. And after the Ten Commandments are given, this essentially functions as a summary statement. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as Yahweh your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Who does that sound like? That sounds like Josiah. You, you see, the kingdoms have been such a dumpster fire. You, you, you guys have been here. This has been an absolute mess. That To see Josiah return to the word of God and to the ways of God, it led one commentator to say this. He said, I think Josiah is the only king to have ever kept Torah. Whether or not you agree with that commentator, he's making a provocative point that so few have been faithful to Yahweh that here comes this one named Josiah, and it's as if he's the only one who's ever done the word of God. Josiah, he's amazing. Now, in passing, this gives us another reason not to look down upon young people in the story of salvation. God has used young people from age eight to 26 to everywhere in between for his purposes since the beginning of the world. We could repeat the words of Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Beloved, do not despise young people And especially don't despise young people who are in the Lord. God is at work in third graders' lives in this city right now as we speak. God is at work in high schools all around the city and all around the world working in 16-year-olds' hearts the way Josiah began seeking the Lord at 16. He's at work at Loyola and Northwestern and Moody Bible Institute and the University of Chicago. College-age students at age 20 are carrying out reformations in their own hearts that need to be done. Let us not despise the work of God in young people at this church. We have no room for that. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set an example. And Josiah sets a great example. Now, It's the 26th year of his life and the 18th year of his reign that Josiah gets back to work. He looks at Shaphan, who's described as his secretary, and he essentially says, Hey, Shaphan, go check out the work that's going on at the temple. Make sure they have what they need, and let's make sure this thing uh, gets cleaned up a bit. And in 3 to 7, Shaphan goes. You you see, Josiah here has a very high view of God and of God's living place, so he wants to get the house ready for Yahweh to inhabit. Now, the very next thing we learn in verse 8 is that Shaphan didn't necessarily do what the king said. We're not told about that, but we're introduced to a dude named Hilkiah. And he has this serendipitous discovery in the house of God. I have found the book of the law. I have found the book of Torah in the house of Yahweh. And so Hilkiah takes this book that he finds, he hands it to Shaphan, and Shaphan reads it. And the next thing we're told is that Shaphan is returning with this book that they just discovered to the king. And he gets in the king's presence and he says, hey, king, I did what you asked me to do. I uh, got things in order at the temple. But then he saves the most interesting line and the most interesting point for the last thing he says. Oh, verse ten. Oh, by the way, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. By the way, by the way, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. He almost says it nonchalantly, as if, as if it's as if it's just one other point. And so he reads it. Now, let me ask you: What did you do the first time you read the Bible? Do you remember that day? When was the first time you heard the Bible read or you read it personally? When Josiah hears it, verse 11, he tears his clothes. He tears his clothes. It's an outward expression of inward distress. He didn't turn to the happiest chapter of the Bible. We're not told exactly where, he, uh, where it was read from. But something in the word of God causes deep distress in his soul and he tears his clothes he heard something that was incredibly upsetting. And Josiah has the courage to say that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Josiah has the courage to say, I need to change. And I'm gonna show that by tearing my clothes. It's an outward expression that something inside of him needs to change. And beloved, repentance is always ground zero for true reformation. This is where reformation starts. Reformation always starts with repentance. No repentance, no true reformation. Repentance is the turning away of our hearts towards lesser things, turning them back to Yahweh, the one that they were designed for. He knows that wrath is coming. And you you might think to yourself, how does he know that wrath is coming? Look at verses 12 and 13. He sends five grown men to inquire what this word means. And he says, verse 13, for great is the wrath of God that is kindled against us because of our disobedience is what he's saying. Josiah draws a straight line between the disobedience of the people and the wrath of God. This leads to this. Covenant breakers deserve covenant curses. And he knows that the people have broken their wedding vows with God and that covenant curses are coming against them. Well, the story then jumps immediately to Huldah the prophetess. Huldah the prophetess. They were simply told to go find out what this means, and they find themselves here in the presence of Huldah. Now, keep in mind that Josiah, he's not looking for a modification of the word. He's not trying to change the word that he just read. He's simply looking for an interpretation of it. He knows that covenant curses are coming. He's just wondering how quickly are they coming? Now, we need to know this. At the time of Josiah, we know for a fact that Jeremiah prophesied, the Jeremiah in your Bible, and Zephaniah prophesied. Zephaniah is one of the most eloquent, shorter prophet Old Testament writers. Jeremiah, one of the major prophets, and Zephaniah, they're alive at this point. They could have easily gone to Jeremiah or Zephaniah, but these guys go to Huldah, the prophetess. Why? Well, we can learn a few things here. One, when godly women speak, wise men listen. When godly women speak, wise men listen to what they have to say. I'm not commenting here on our church's stance about who ought to be called pastors and what the New Testament teaches on that. It's not what I'm getting at here. What I'm getting at is she has the word. She explains the word to them, and these wise men listen. Ladies, you can tune out for a second. Brothers, when's the last time you went to a sister for a word of guidance as to what God might be doing in your life? When's the last time you invited a sister in Christ, one who you know is godly, to speak into the dynamics of your marriage or of your relationship? When's the last time you sought a woman for an interpretation of the word of God? When godly women speak the word of God, wise men listen. All right, now brothers, you can tune out and I want to speak to the ladies. I'm making a shameless plug that as, that as many women from this church get trained to teach the Bible as humanly possible. I'm making a shameless plug for that. We desire more and more women to be fit to teach the Bible and to love teaching the Bible. And there is a Simeon Trust biblical workshop for biblical exposition that's designed specifically for women coming up in March of 2024. And I want so many women from this church to go to that, that they have to start a whole nother conference for the women in Chicago. Women of God have always been designed to have the Word of God and to know the Word of God and to teach the Word of God. Again, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying anything about our view of who ought to be pastors and elders in the church. What I am saying is that women with the Word are powerful for the kingdom of God. They go to Huldah, not to Jeremiah, not to Zephaniah. Here's another thing. We can learn from this that just because Huldah might not have the biggest ministry in the world that she has anything less to say. The point is, it doesn't matter who the messenger is. The point is, it matters what the message is. And if it's Huldah or Jeremiah or Zephaniah, they all bring the word of God to bear on the people of God. So here's her message in verse 16. She says, Yahweh is bringing disaster. His judgment has been pronounced and the judgment is guilty. That's her message. And look how personal she gets in verse 17. Because they have forsaken me, she's speaking on Yahweh's behalf. Because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. It's a message of disaster, isn't it? Disaster is coming on the people of Judah. But then she specifically says that, hey, you, Josiah, Since you repented from the heart, you're going to die in peace. In other words, you're not going to see the deportation to Babylon that everyone else is going to see. That's what she's saying here to Josiah. Well, the chapter then ends with the five men heading back to King Josiah, and that's the end of the chapter. You see the imminent judgment here? Josiah feels it when he reads the word. And he hears it from Huldah, the prophetess, and it calls for immediate reformation in Josiah's life. We have yet to see if this is going to have any impact on the people of God, but what we know for sure is that Josiah knew he needed to repent and he needed to reform his ways right here and right now. Now, stick with me for a moment. The challenge of this text comes when we think about the original audience. The original audience isn't Josiah and the people that Josiah is ruling right now. The original audience are the people living in exile. They've already received the wrath of God. They're standing in Babylon looking back on how they got in Babylon. So here's what I'm trying to say. They're standing in between one judgment that's already taken place, anticipating another day of judgment that is imminent. What do I mean by that? It's either the day when they meet their maker face-to-face or when God balances the ledger again and he brings them back into the land. Both of those function as days of judgment and they stand between the first day of judgment and the second day of judgment. Does that make it sense? And the message of Josiah is saying, look, you're already on the backside of that day of judgment. Now, repent and reform your ways, knowing that another day of judgment, a bigger day of judgment, is at hand. That's the way this chapter is functioning for the original audience. Because in exile, they were meant to reform their ways. Moses, writing in Deuteronomy 4, talks about the purpose of exile. This is what he says. But from there, that is exile, you will seek Yahweh your God and you will find him if you search after him with all of your heart and with all your soul. This is the function of exile. It's meant to reform their ways and reform their hearts. They've been judged once and they're going to be judged again. And by the way, God doesn't make any empty threats. The question is, Will you seek Yahweh with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might? How will you respond to the word of God? Well, we've labored on this point long enough, so we need to move to the immediate reformation that we see in the people of God in chapter 23. So meet me again in chapter 23. This is about four or five minutes of reading, but it's good reading, so hang in there. Then the king sends, by the way, If you could summarize this chapter in one word, what would it be? That's what I'm going to ask you when we're done reading. What's the one word you'd use to describe chapter 23? Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of Yahweh, and with him all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of Yahweh. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before Yahweh to walk after Yahweh and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of Yahweh all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the host of the heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of Yahweh outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of Yahweh where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left at the gate of the city. However, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of Yahweh in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. And he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance of the house of Yahweh by the chamber of Nathan-Melech, the chamberlain, which was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. And the altars on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of Yahweh, he pulled down in broken pieces and cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem, to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtaroth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the ashram and filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, at the altar of Bethel, The high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place, he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. And so Josiah turned, and as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs that were on the mount. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of Yahweh that the man of God proclaimed who who had predicted these things." Then he said, what is that monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, it is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. He said, let him be, let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. And Josiah removed all the shrines also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which kings of Israel had made, provoking Yahweh to anger. He did to them according to all that he had done at Bethel, and he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to Yahweh your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel. Or of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of the king Josiah, of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to Yahweh in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem. That he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of Yahweh. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to Yahweh with all his heart, and with all his soul, and with all his might, according to, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Still, Yahweh did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And Yahweh said, I will remove Judah out of, also out of my sight as I have removed Israel and I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. Two long chapters. What's your word? You don't need to answer out loud, but I wonder what that word is that you'd use to describe this chapter. For me, it's reformation. What we see here in Josiah's life is the most sweeping reformation that we've seen in all of the books of Kings. Now, we need to keep in mind why did Josiah do these reformations? Did he accomplish these reformations in order to avert the wrath of God? Or knowing that the wrath of God was coming? Did he reform the people in order to escape imminent judgment? Or knowing that imminent judgment was at hands? The answer is the latter. He knew it knowing full well that God had pronounced his judgment on the people. And the, the judgment was guilty. So you say, why does Josiah do all this knowing that this is happening? Because he loved God and because he knows that this is the right thing to do. In light of imminent judgment, we need to reform our ways, not that our ways can save us. Only God, the covenant faithful one, can save us. We respond this way because it's the right thing to do and because it shows that we love Yahweh. Well, I want to very briefly show you the reformations that he does. There are two ways that we could do this. I could just walk chronologically through what we just read. I think that would be a bit tedious. So I want to group these thematically. And I'm grouping them under two themes. One, he accomplishes constructive reformation. And second, destructive reformation. Constructive reformation and destructive reformation. In verse 2, we see the first aspect of constructive reformation. He gathers all the people and he reads the Torah to them. This is where reformation starts with repentance, and with the word of God. He brings all of the people, and it says small and great. That's Bible talk for saying that even the children were there. Get all the people here, even the children, and let's hear hear this book read to us. There's good reason that we have to believe that what they found is the book of Deuteronomy. It doesn't ultimately matter what book it is, but here's the two reasons why it's probably the book of Deuteronomy. The book of the law is how Deuteronomy refers to itself in Deuteronomy 30 and in verse 10. It's called the book of the Torah. Now, Deuteronomy also has an emphasis on the central place of worship, and this is exactly what Josiah does here. He re-centralizes the worship of God. Either way, if it's Deuteronomy, Genesis, Numbers, you name it, they read the book and Imagine kids sitting there for several hours at hand listening to the Torah, but this was the the discovery of a lifetime. Now, the fall and autumn season feels like a fresh juncture for me. It always feels that way. Even though it's not the beginning of the calendar year, it feels like there's excitement and new things are at hand. So let me take the opportunity to ask you, what's your inventory of the Word of God? Are you taking in the whole counsel of God on a regular basis because this is what we need in order for true and lasting reformation is to know the Bible. You see, John Wycliffe, who was an early English Bible translator, he lived in one of the darkest periods of of gospel history. But he loved the Bible and he knew the centrality of the Bible for the people of God. And he says this, the true Christian was intended by Christ to prove all things by the word of God, all churches, all ministers, all teaching, all preaching, all doctrines, all sermons, all writings, all opinions, all practices, everything is to be proved by the word of God. These are his marching orders, he says, prove all by the word of God. Measure all by the measure of the Bible. Compare all with the standard of the Bible. Weigh all in the balances of the Bible. Examine all by the light of the Bible. Test all in the crucible of the Bible. That which cannot abide the fire of the Bible, reject, refuse, repudiate, and cast away. This is the flag which he nailed to the mast. May it never be lowered. That rings true today as much as it has at any time. God has revealed himself in a book, and the book is what we call his word. So, constructive reformation begins with the word of God. In verse three, we see the second aspect of constructive reformation, and that is he renews the covenant. This is how I would summarize it Josiah says, Hey, Yahweh, you are my God, and I am your son. This is the heart of covenant, it's relationship. And it's the presence of God. By saying he wants to be in right relationship with God again, he is saying, I am your son, O Lord. And he has contagious leadership. So all the people join in with him. They say, we are your people and you are our God. They renew the covenant. Everything he's about to do, destructing all the idols, it's legalism if you don't get this part right. It's legalism if you don't realize that there's a relationship with Yahweh that underpins all of this. Now, if you're a member of Addison Street Community Church, next week at our meeting of the membership, we begin by renewing our covenant, our fellowship covenant. And it's... uh, Depending on how you divide it, it's somewhat of a long document. It's one page, essentially single-spaced, but it's not all that long. Can I invite you to meditate on our fellowship covenant before you come next week, so that when we actually say it together, that we're renewing our covenant to Yahweh, to the triune God and to each other? He returns to the book, He renews the covenant, and in verses 17 and 18, he honors those whom God has honored. Uh, if you have some time this afternoon, read 1 Kings 13. 1 Kings 13, we're introduced to this prophet. We don't know his name, but he prophesies about Josiah by name. And he talks about all of the things that Josiah does in this chapter. And there's this monument that Josiah sees that piques his interest. And he's like, what is this monument? And they're told that, oh, this was the prophet who predicted all of these things. And Josiah essentially says, honor, these, honor this monument, because true reformation honors that which God has honored. Now, that is the constructive reformation that Josiah institutes, but he saves the best for last. He reestablishes the Passover meal. Now, think about this. If you knew the day on which you were converted to Christ, what, what would be more important, your birthday or your redemption day? What's more important? It's the day when Christ set you free from sin and death and the grave. How could you ever forget the day when you were saved? The Passover was designed to help them never forget their birthday as a nation, their their day of redemption as a nation. The Passover was meant to be a tactile reminder that God had set them free, and they hadn't kept the Passover since the day of Judges. So Josiah keeps the Passover When we get away from the word of God, we rob our souls of the joyful feasts that God has made for us. This was meant to be a good thing for them. All right, that's the constructive reformation. Very quickly, the destructive reformation. We saw that he is set in this trajectory in chapter 22 when he tears his clothes. He then gets to cleansing the temple. He needs to get rid of everything that the honored guest hates in order that the honored guest would love being there. I was at my neighbor's house a few weeks ago, and one of our other neighbors was at the house as well, and she was talking about how they had just closed on a new house across the street from where they lived right now, and they had, they had made the purchase of the home, but they hadn't yet closed on it, so they, they weren't able to yet move in, so one day she's looking out of her house, and she sees the new house that they just bought, and there's a light on inside. And she's like, I. when we were in there last, we didn't leave any lights on. What's going on here? Why is there a light on? So she calls up the agent who was selling the house, and she's like, can you go check this out for me? Well, the agent goes there, and there were squatters living in the house. They had drawn up a lease with that address on it to make it look like they were legitimate tenants of that house. In order for my neighbor to move into that house, the squatters needed to be pushed out. The same is true for Yahweh. He can't live in the temple if there's Baal and Asherah poles in there. You got to get rid of this. I got to watch my language. You got to get rid of this stuff that Yahweh hates in order for Yahweh to live there. Yahweh hates this stuff. He's not going to live in the temple. So Josiah cleanses the temple. This is the hot spot of God's glory, and he's not going to share it with anyone, and he's not going to share his people with anyone. Well, he starts at the house of God, but then moving from that central place, he moves out to all of the places in his kingdom that he rules over. He rids the land of idolatry. Every square inch that he is the king over, he gets rid of idolatry methodically. He deposes the priests who facilitated false worship. He breaks down the altars that are for false gods. He gets rid of those men who practice ritual prostitution at the house of God. He gets rid of the places where children were being sacrificed to no gods at all. This is the type of stuff that we need to tear down in order to worship Yahweh properly. And so he, he institutes destructive reformation. And all of this he does with extraordinary vigor. Look at verse 25. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to Yahweh with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might. What does that sound like? It sounds like the Shema. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love him with all your heart, soul, and might. Josiah turned to the Lord with all his heart, soul, and might. Nor did any like him arise after him. But the saddest punchline then comes in verse 26. Still, the wrath of God was not averted from the people. But here's the thing. Josiah inherited the kingdom in darkness, and he left it in relative light, did he not? He found the kingdom dying, and by the grace of God, he brings it to new life again. He finds the kingdom as idolaters, and he leaves them as covenant keepers. He finds them without the word of God and he returns the word of God to central in the life of the people. This is what biblical reformation does. This is what happens when we find the book and when we take it wholeheartedly. Why did he do this? Not to avert the wrath of God. Not because he thought the imminent judgment of God was far away, but knowing that it was right around the corner. Imminent judgment, friends. It calls for immediate reformation. Now, let me talk to you. Where do you need to reform according to the word of God? I'm tempted to press in on individual things, but that would 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 defeat my purpose. The whole point is we need to reform according to this whole thing. There's not one page in here that doesn't apply to us as a church. Certainly, we have to talk about how The law relates to us, but that doesn't mean we can't profit from it. We need to be reformed according to the word of God. Will we seek Yahweh? Because remember, they stood in between two judgment days. And and here's where I close. And we stand between two judgment days as well. The first of our judgment days came 2,000 years ago. When the innocent son of God took our place on a guilty cross for our covenant breaking. He was a covenant keeper and he dies as a covenant breaker in order that we might be justified. He receives the judgment of condemnation that we might receive the judgment of justification. That is the judgment seat. That is the judgment day that we stand behind. In John, in John chapter 3 says, those who have not believed in the name of Jesus Christ are condemned already. He's under the impression that if you do not acknowledge the Son of God, you're not just waiting for a judgment day, but you're under condemnation right now. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe that God poured out his judgment on his Son in order that we might be justified. Look at Revelation 22, 7. The whole book of Revelation was designed to motivate the people for, Re- for reformation. This is Jesus speaking. He says, behold, I'm coming soon. He's at the door. The judge is right here. He could come today before you lay your head on the pillow. That's why we say it so often here. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. In other words, blessed is the one who gets reform in his heart, knowing that the king is coming. Christian, non-Christian alike, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. What are you going to say? Think about that. We labor so hard for the speeches we write in school and for the presentations we have to give at work. What are you going to say when the God of the universe calls you to account? Why should he let you in? How about this from the Heidelberg Catechism? This puts it so perfectly. How does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? In all distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place. There's been a judgment and we await a judgment. We stand in between two judgments. He stood in my place and removed the whole curse from me. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. Praise be to God. We stand on one side of the judgment waiting for another one. And we better be able to point at Jesus and say, because my name is written on his hands, because my name is graven on his heart, therefore I can come in. He took my covenant curses that I might receive his covenant blessings. We need to rehearse what we're going to say when we stand before the judgment seat of God. But friends, please the way that one of the ways that we know that we have believed in Christ is if we start looking more and more like Christ. How can we say we're in Christ if there's no evidence of Christ in us? So William Gurnall says, say not that you have royal blood in your veins. Say not that you are born of God if you cannot prove your pedigree by daring to be holy. This is how we know That we are in Christ. Is Christ manifesting himself in us? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and be baptized. Repent and believe the gospel. Will we get to work repenting and reforming. Knowing that a judgment day is at hand. That's the question we need to think about today. Will we get working or will we be caught unprepared? Thanks for listening to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. We hope you were encouraged by God's word. And for more info for joining us for a worship service, for taking your next steps with us, please visit ASCCChicago.org.